Welcome, beautiful people, to Growthology Podcast. I'm Lorena, and I'm a licensed mental health therapist that is very interested in the science behind all things well-being and growth. And I am Monica. I'm a working mom, a wife, currently a college student, and I'm just an everyday person who's trying to live a happy and healthy life. In our podcast, we discuss topics like personal growth, wellness, mindfulness, and emotional intelligence, and hopes to grow a community of positivity. Hello, beautiful people. Thanks for being here today. Today, we're really excited. We're having a guest on our podcast, and we're going to be talking about the effects of childhood trauma on adulthood. We are here with Evelise Valentine. She's a licensed social worker, LMSW, and she's going to give us some background on the different types of trauma, as well as some other studies that there's been. And we're going to talk mostly about the effects and then some ways to cope with this trauma as adults. Evelise, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you taking the time to help us spread more knowledge and facts regarding the effects of childhood trauma on adulthood. Evelise and I basically had our entire social work journey together. We met in undergrad, and then we also went to grad school together, taking most of the same classes in an advanced standing program. And then we also started working for the same agency together, but with in different programs. So Evelise was working in an outpatient with children, and I worked at an extended day treatment program with children as well. And then we just couldn't get enough of each other. So then we started working <laughs> at the adult outpatient program within the same agency. So you guys basically developed your entire career in education together. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is correct. Yes. Which we went was, through a lot together. <laughs> that's it was awesome. really good to see each other grow during college and during our career, especially in the initial stage of our career. Yeah. That's and personal awesome. life, too. We went through a lot, you know, throughout undergrad and grad school. Things changed a lot yes. throughout that time. So, Evelise, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the social work field and where you're at right now in your career? Sure, absolutely. So, uh, I was actually told by my advisor at SCSU that I would be able to graduate faster if I enrolled in the social work program, like after she looked at what current credits I had. Mm -hmm. So, I always say that social work actually picked me, Mm -hmm. but while in the program, I did realize there are many avenues a social worker can take with their career. Initially, I wanted to work in a policy setting. I was able to participate in an internship program at the Capitol here in Connecticut, where I was exposed to policy firsthand. I became very interested in policy while at the Capitol. However, I did decide to follow a clinical track so that I would be able to work at a micro level and gain that experience for the future if I ever then decided to switch to policy. So after graduating, I went straight into outpatient work with children. I then decided to transition over to adult mental health and substance. And I then transitioned one more time to my current role as a school social worker, which I absolutely love. And I feel it's been a good move. 
That's awesome. I mean, working at the Capitol is huge. Um, can you talk a little bit about what sort of policies that you worked on while you were there? Yes. So I worked on a bill that addressed guardian ad litem reform. Guardian ad litems, for anyone that might not be familiar, is kind of, um, kind of like a middleman between the family and the judge. They do a lot of evaluations and observations and they help the judge kind of decide where the children should be placed throughout a custody battle. So I wow. then also introduced through the assistance of former state representative Ernest Hewitt, HB 5684, which is an act concerning Valentine's law and child care subsidies for parents attending college. At that time, child care subsidies did not view attending college as a full-time job, something that I came to find through personal experience. So i introduce this bill to try and assist parents that go to college full-time to be able to secure childcare subsidies so that they can have somewhere that their children can go and be cared for while they're at school. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I think that that's inspiring to work on things at that level. That's really amazing that you did that. Can you share some of your professional experience in regards to childhood trauma and the impacts that it has on adulthood? I have worked with children in the outpatient setting who have experienced trauma such as physical and sexual abuse, neglect, natural disasters such as Hurricane Maria, and disruptive displacements such as coming from Puerto Rico to Connecticut or anywhere in the USA as a result of the disaster. I have also worked with adults who have experienced traumas and other sorts of traumas, such as substance abuse. One common theme that I found when working with adults who had experienced some form of trauma was how they longed for the love and affection of their parents. I heard this a lot throughout my work with adults. They wanted to feel protected and important in the eyes of their mothers and their fathers. So they always say if there was one thing I could go back and change that they feel would have decreased their traumas or helped them get through them better would be more affection and support from biological parents. I worked with a lot of children that had experienced that their family members had experienced traumas. So there was a pattern of what's called generational trauma. Not all of these children, but most of them did come from a home where generational trauma was present. Say that majority of the time it is like that. It's not just this mm -hmm. nuance of just one child and then they the rest of their family had a perfect childhood. It's usually the parents struggled and they, did, they don't really know how to give that care and love that you were just talking about, that it's so important. They never received that, so they don't really know how to give it to their own children. Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's a big question that I had with a lot of my adult clients is, well, tell me a little bit about the way your parents showed love to you and tell me what you know about the way their parents showed your parents love and affection, because um, it can be very similar as to how that love was or was not displayed. I also saw the ability in children to work through their trauma in therapy and be able to make progress in areas of domain where the child was having difficulty with something. One case that I remember was a child who unfortunately experienced one incident of a sexual abuse 
at the hands of her own brother. And because it happened in the bathroom, this little girl was very fearful to even take a shower alone in the bathroom. So we did um, small exposure therapy and little by little, this young girl finally was able to use the bathroom alone. Mm -hmm. So it was a really good case that I remember because children definitely um, have the ability to make that progress. It just takes a little time with them. Yeah. And even if that's someone that had, that's why it's so important to reach these kids at a young age, because that, because that trauma could have gotten a lot more intense and worse through adulthood. This could have been an adult being fearful of being alone in the bathroom, of taking a shower, or it could even lead to somebody not showering at all. Mm -hmm. We see that a lot too with, when it comes to issues with hygiene. Mm -hmm. So it's really amazing that, Evelise, you were able to work with that child and implement that exposure therapy. I also want to shout you out because when you talked about the trauma of Hurricane Maria, Evelise and I worked together in Hartford, Connecticut, and there is a, a very high population of Puerto Ricans in that neighborhood where we worked and just in that city. And Evelise created a group all on her own for these these this population in Hartford and gave them a space to come and, and be around their own people and talk about their anxiety and fears about feeling helpless in that moment because they all had family in Puerto Rico and they didn't have water, they didn't have light, they didn't have, you know, all these resources that are necessary for just to live, you know, basic things. And I thought that that was really amazing that Evelise this wasn't a part of her her job, really. She went above and beyond and created this group. And I remember the it was mostly all ladies, right? Yeah, it was all ladies. Um, all ladies, you know, really feeling like they had a place to go and talk about all their worries. And I, I know that that helped them a lot. It was a really good group, not just for them, but for myself, because we were all in that same boat. So yeah. it was healing for me as well. And I always think of um, these women, even to this day, they always pop into my head here and there. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I mean, you can really tell that you have a genuine passion for what you're doing. I mean, that's not like Lorena said, you are going above and beyond. And the impact that you have on people is is showing. And that is amazing and truly inspiring. Thank you. When we think about a traumatic event, for the most part, I think we think of things like death in the family, abuse, a tragic accident, but a traumatic event can be much more than this. According to the American Psychological Association, a traumatic event is one that threatens injury, death, or the physical integrity of self or others, and also causes horror, terror, or helplessness at the time it occurs. So this can encompass many different situations and it may be different for each person that comes in contact with that event. Absolutely. Like we all know, child abuse, sexual abuse, neglect are some of the main forms of traumas that pop into people's minds, but also things such as lack of basic needs. For example, if someone's lacking shelter and they're homeless, that is traumatic within itself. If someone is lacking food and or doesn't have any food at all, that is traumatic. A disrupted detachment, such as a child being taken away from a parent or having to be removed from other family members because 
of a displacement such as a hurricane, for example. So not only did the hurricane happen, that's traumatic, but now having to leave the island and leave family and life, that's also traumatic. Substance use, whether you're the user or if you've seen someone using substances can be very traumatic. Incarceration of family members, having to go and visit these family members can be traumatic for someone. Something that I also think of are accidents, such as car accidents, whether you're the whether you were in the car accident or you witnessed the accident, an accident at a job, and also traumatic brain injuries are all even more examples of traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. My personal traumatic experience as a child involved alcohol and domestic violence. My father was physically physically abusive with me at times. There was never any sexual abuse that I might say. My father was very respectful to us. Um, for example, if we were in the bathroom taking a bath as a little girl. He'd never come in. He knew that was our time. The domestic violence ended when I unfortunately had to call, had to call the police. I would say I was in the fifth or sixth grade, just so you have an idea of about how old I was. Mm -hmm. And it was an eye opener for all of us, us being the family. My father stopped putting his hands on my mother. It was not something that happened weekly, let's say, nor did it happen monthly, but it did happen mm -hmm. because of the alcohol. When we were younger, he would drink and he'd drive with us in the car and that was scary. So as a child, that's traumatic because I would remember being in the car and I'd just kind of pray in my head that we all made it home safely. And thankfully we did, nothing ever happened, but it's just a little scary to be a young kid in a car like that and, and just wondering and hoping you get home safe. But I must say on the flip side, my father was a very hard worker. He worked his tail off to bring home food, have shelter, clothes, so that we could always travel in the summertime to visit our families in Puerto Rico. We never lacked any basic needs. He participated in family activities. Like we'd go out to amusement parks in the summer. We'd go to family parties. He was very involved aside from the drinking and the DV. But my father, as I mentioned before about generational trauma, he came from generational trauma. His father was an alcoholic. He was practically abandoned by his mother, although later on in years they spoke and reconciled. But he didn't have an easy childhood at mm -hmm. all. So my father didn't know how to give love. For him, giving love was making sure we had our basic needs. Mm -hmm. um, and I must say, these patterns of behaviors have, have ended uh, for quite some time now. And my father and I have a really nice relationship now. Well, thank you for sharing that, Evelise. I'm, I'm sure that's not easy to talk about. And and I just think that it, what really stands out in that, that it's amazing you called the police at that age, about any age, because, you know, clearly the adults in the house didn't even have that courage. And you as a child did. And, and that alone can be so scary because you don't know the repercussions of that. You know, so many... This happens a lot and some kids end up having worse outcomes from doing that. Right, right. And I share that because um, I just would like the listeners to know if someone has experienced something like this as a child and maybe never really spoke about it, it happens. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's just a part of life for, some, for certain people. But fortunately, you can overcome any experiences that you have had in your childhood. 
I'm behind the microphone and I'm kind of choked up during this whole conversation. I definitely have shared some of my childhood traumas um, related to my parents and, and my dad and his emotional abuse. And I think we all kind of have that a little bit in common. And then I have some other trauma that I don't know if I'll ever be able to uh, discuss that on a public level, but definitely the emo emotional abuse piece is the part that I think was the more significant and impactful. But it did shape my own behaviors and what I was doing and how I was living my life and what I thought was a healthy relationship or a healthy interaction. And, you know, dealing with depression and anxiety and those things that were gener generationally passed down to me, um, as you spoke of before. And then even with uh, my first marriage, my ex-husband was an alcoholic and well, at one point he got really intoxicated and shot himself accidentally. And I was there for that event and that was highly traumatic. And even now I don't like guns and I don't like guns mixed with alcohol. And Absolutely. anytime I see those together, it's just like an instant trigger where I'm like, this is bad. We need to exit the situation. Why are we here? And I think that's something that I'm always going to have to kind of struggle dealing with. Because when you experience something that's like so profound, like you literally see a gunshot wound and you're taking somebody to the ER, you're just like, oh, my God, it can end up really bad. But did your personal experience shape the field that you chose to work in and the amount of passion that you have for it? I would say that it shaped it after I was in my in the field. So not when I was going through the training in college. When I was in the field working with adults, I realized that I really did like uh, working with the female population and the population of females that have experienced some sort of domestic violence, whether it was their own personal experience or maybe their mother's experience. I felt like I was able to connect more with these women because I went through that experience myself as a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a common issue with when it comes to smaller types of traumas or traumas that aren't usually, you know, like the domestic violence or the drug use or generational traumas is that many people will downplay it despite it having a really big effect on them but they might say well I didn't go through any of that so I shouldn't be having these trauma-like responses or these trauma symptoms so we say it wasn't that bad it shouldn't be affecting me this much but this often shapes us and even parts of our personality because trauma affects a child's brain and it really does change the way that the brain develops. I recently saw a therapist that helped me understand my OCD-like behaviors a bit better and how this was leading to some issues with my husband, how I felt so irritated when he didn't do things a certain way or at my pace or how I wanted them to be done. So it was this, this control thing with things that weren't, shouldn't really be that big of a deal. And while working with my therapist, we were able to make the connection of my father being like this towards me when I was little. Me having this deep-rooted belief that nothing was ever really good enough and how I felt I could never do things right or no matter how good I thought I was being, there was always pressure and pointing like the quote-unquote bad things out. So this really led me to want to be in control 
of as many things that I can. And, you know, I'm very the type of person that will do things right away. I don't wait for things. Um, I'm like the opposite of waiting until tomorrow. I want to do like everything right now, even if there's no time. (laughs) And that can in some ways really be easily an issue in the household. That's really good that you learned that about yourself. And I think it's important that everybody has issues like you're a therapist and you still have things that you do that Mm -hmm. bother your spouse like no relationship is perfect everybody has to work on different things definitely Um, absolutely I couldn't agree more Lorena introduced this thing to me called the ACE study so anybody can take the ACE study online I'm actually going to leave a link at in the notes for this episode. But can you explain a little bit about what the ACE study is from somebody who knows absolutely nothing about it? And uh, what are your perspectives? So ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, which basically is traumatic experiences during your childhood. Uh, Essentially, it is a quiz that scores what risk category you fall on, depending on the number of past traumatic childhood experiences. I think the ACE study does a nice job of categorizing the three different kinds of traumatic experiences and then subcategorizing them. And they do show that on the website. One finding that came from the ACE study was how some populations are more vulnerable to experiencing ACEs because of the social and economic conditions in which they live, learn, work, and even play in. I do agree with this. For example, the school I work at is in an inner city community, a community where gun violence, substance use, poverty, domestic violence, even prostitutions are some of the few traumatic experiences children are exposed to on a day-to-day. For example, this past October, there was an actual drive-by shooting during dismissal. I remember having to process this event with two children that had to shelter in place when this occurred. Although they did not witness the shooting, they certainly heard it and were able to describe in detail what occurred. So it was very unfortunate because this is something that happened right around the school during dismissal. And even though I know the kind of community I work in, the fact that it happened when it was happening there in person was just like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening, but it was. Um, So that's just like one unfortunate example of a community risk factor that can certainly increase the probability of children experiencing a traumatic event. And it seems like lower income neighborhoods, unfortunately, experience it at a higher rate. This is very true. And then when we think about the cultures that live typically in lower income neighborhoods. So there's another, there's a specific populations that experience childhood traumas more than others. Finances come into place. Do the parents of these children work? Do they not work? Do they have some kind of education, Mm -hmm. like educational background, whether it's some college, no college, some high school, no high school. So a lot of little factors start coming into play when it comes to assessing the probability of childhood trauma. Both me and Lorena took this ACE quiz actually together (laughs) (laughs) and I scored a four on the test so what does that mean so the ACE score is used as more of a guidance to get a better sense of what trauma someone has went through as a child so the scores are from zero to ten 
meaning you've experienced 10 different traumas. And this is anything you've experienced from birth to age 17. And Mm -hmm. it's anything that you remember as an adult. So the higher the score, the higher the risk for later health problems in life are. This could be chronic illnesses, substance use, and mental health issues. So Monica, you scored a four out of 10. 10 being the highest score, zero being the lowest. And I read a lot about this and for many different research papers. And what I found is that most research I read mentions that a score of four or more is considered to be problematic. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, it's, it, it does, this is the A score is not like a mathematical formula that says, you know, this is what's going to happen if you receive the score. It's just you're at higher risk. So they do have mathematical data about the percentage that you're at risk. So it'll be double the probability of you getting a chronic health issue. And they have a lot of these resources on the CDC website where it kind of breaks it down and assess the exact percentages. But it doesn't necessarily mean you will have these issues. It just raises the the probability of that happening. Does that make sense? It does. I feel like it's it's right. Like I'm just like right there. Yeah. Like you know, at the the farther end of the spectrum. But mm-hmm. yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit about studies and data on the effects that I think is, is pretty important to note. A study published in Child Development found that the type of emotional support a child receives during the first three and a half years of their life has an effect on education, social life, and romantic relationships up to 20 to 30 years later. So that is a really big age gap. 20 to 30 years, you don't think that right now I'm I'm 28. I don't think like, oh, what happened when I was five that is still affecting mm-hmm. me today? I feel more pressure now as me as a parent because Lily's too. I'm like, shoot, what could <laughs> yeah. I do that's going to mess her up in life? <laughs> Yeah, you're definitely being more cognizant now that we're learning all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then That's funny. According to this, then you'll find out when she's 22 years old, maybe 23, yeah. somewhere <laughs> around there. And like Evelise already mentioned, children that are raised in supportive and caring homes were found to be more successful in standardized testing, attained higher college degrees, are more likely to get along in social settings and feel more satisfied in romantic relationships. But what does caring and supportive home look like? Do you guys feel like this is something that can be concretely taught? Or what are the aspects that would make a a home supportive and caring? One of the first things that comes to mind for me is safety, that every single person that lives in that household feels safe in their own home, especially the children. So the children, if the parents are caring and supportive, the children are most likely going to feel safe because you want to be able to know that your home, what's supposed to be your sanctuary is somewhere where you're safe. Yeah. And what comes to my mind is boundaries. And I think that we are as a whole, I think we're getting better with respecting children's boundaries, but I know that all three of us know 
because we're all Latina, we know that that is kind of new in the Hispanic culture because I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in a home where I was like, kiss your aunt, kiss your uncle, kiss this cousin, kiss the stranger that just came that you don't know because that's how you greet people or you have to hug them even if you don't want to. And Mm -hmm. I think that at least my generation is getting a lot better with that. I know that my cousins don't do that with their kids. They have found a way like you can say hello and be respectful, but you don't have to have physical touch if you don't want to. And I think that's a really big thing with boundaries and respecting kids boundaries and remembering that they are humans. They're little humans, but they're still humans. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, Lorena. And mm-hmm. I grew up the same way where, yes, you hug and you kiss everyone. Mm-hmm. And when I was raising Anna, I didn't force her to hug and kiss people. And my mother, she started breaking away from that also. So it was nice mm-hmm. to see that she was open minded and starting realizing started to realize, you know, that's not exactly necessary all the time, not with every single individual. It was something that I grew up with. It was something that I changed with my child. And it was nice to see that my mother was also able to change her view on that. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I do with Lily. I'll ask her, hey, can I give you a kiss? And then she'll sometimes she'll be like, nope. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to walk away <laughs> <laughs> and deal with that rejection. But, you know, letting her know that it's her decision who kisses her body or who she chooses to kiss and not making her feel a certain way if she's not doing something that I don't want or that I want her to do. Yeah. And that will really stick with them when they know as a child, oh, I can say no. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, she's seeing like, wow, mommy is respecting me. And when kids think like mommy has the final say with everything, mommy is always right. Cause that's what, par- what that's what kids think is that the adult is always right. No matter what. Although we know as adults that that's definitely not true. Absolutely. But for But for kids, that's what they see. So if they learn from a young age that I can set boundaries, then they'll know that that's okay to do with other people as well, whether it be strangers or other kids or, you know, when they start to form their own relationships as teenagers and young adults, they have that really ingrained into them that they can say no. And I would say one of the like subconscious things that I learned was, I guess, related to culture, but also like religion is, is that the male always makes the decisions and you're not supposed to say no to the man of the house or the man. And I think that messed with me a lot because there were times that I was situations and sexual situations, you know, that I wasn't comfortable with, but I didn't know how to say no. And it's because that thought process was already ingrained in my mind at such a young age. And it took me years until I reached my adulthood that I finally understood, hey, I have a say and I can say no. And nobody has the right to make me feel a certain way. And that's why Mm -hmm. it's really impactful for me to to learn those and and to teach that difference to my child. Yeah, definitely. And that that makes me think of the boundaries that parents show their kids too. Like, uh, Evelise, you mentioned domestic violence. That's something that is going on between the parents, but the child is witnessing all that. So what are children learning from the kind of relationship that the parents are having? What's okay? What's not okay? What's accepted? What's not accepted? Mm -hmm. Right. There's a lot of messages that are being indirectly sent to a child who's witnessing some sort of domestic violence. And the more they witness it, 
the more they're going to see those indirect messages and they're going to um, begin to believe that that's correct behavior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The higher, like you said, the more they witness it, the higher the risk. Adults who experience trauma throughout childhood developmental stages are at a higher risk to develop complex PTSD. This leads to difficulties in emotional regulation, intrusive thoughts, distorted perceptions of reality and self that is pertaining to self-esteem and self-worth, difficulties in relationships, and difficulty trusting others, just to name a few. A report from 2019 by the CDC found that about 61% of adults who were surveyed have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience, and nearly 17% have reported exposure to multiple. So some common misconceptions that I recently came across related to childhood trauma is that an individual who has been neglected or abused as a child would then become neglectful or abusive to their own children. And for the second one, abused and neglected children will become deviants as adults. And finally, the effect of abuse and neglect are irreparable and that the adult won't live a life of recovery. Yeah, I have definitely heard all of these things. And it's really hard for people to undo these beliefs because they're said so much. It's like, oh, you come from a bad family, you're going to be a bad person. Or you come from abuse, you're going to be an abuser. And although these things do happen, these are definitely misconceptions. I agree. It certainly does happen and can happen and will continue to happen that if someone experiences a childhood trauma, they might fall into one of these misconceptions, but not every single person will. I have witnessed my experience of childhood trauma and I feel like I'm doing pretty okay being a parent. I feel like I've been able to end that generational trauma. Overall, childhood trauma affects all different areas of our life, like emotional, mental, and physical health in adulthood. Childhood abuse can lead to increased feelings of anger, anxiety, low self-esteem, attachment issues, and hopelessness, as well as suicide and substance use issues. Because childhood trauma can cause development and the heightened stress response, this impacts ability to manage emotions, which causes sleep issues, lower immune function, and a higher risk of several different physical illnesses in adulthood. Something that comes to mind is the diagnosis of ADHD in children. It is very important to properly assess a child for any past or current trauma. Many times a child who has experienced a traumatic event is diagnosed with ADHD when it's not ADHD, but rather symptoms resulting from the trauma. Mm-hmm. Children typically don't express their feelings and their emotions with words. They express them through behaviors. So for example, a child might display inattentive behaviors. These inattentive behaviors might be a result of the child thinking of the traumatic event in their head just using that as an example. I do also believe that the above three examples that were mentioned are misconceptions. Not every child that experienced some sort of a childhood trauma will grow up to abuse or neglect their own children. These individuals can in fact grow up to be very productive members of society, Mm -hmm. or at least be able to have stopped 
that trauma. Yeah. And we have definitely, I think you and I have at least have seen this with so many of our own patients. I'm blown away about what some people have been through and how much they've been able to endure since childhood, since birth. And now they're doing so well and they are trying their hardest. And despite every single hurdle that continues to be be put in front of them, They keep trying and they keep trying and they are doing better for themselves. And then the ones that have children are trying better for their kids as well. And that's what keeps them going. For some individuals, being able to be a good parent and and be there for their children is for them a sense of success and achievement because they were able to stop and end any past, any experiences that they might have experienced, they Mm -hmm. didn't choose to be that way what I'm trying to get at is that some people might need help to end these behaviors. Some people yeah. are able to just say, no, I'm not going to be that way. Yeah. There's some people that don't even have access to get the help. So whether they don't have health insurance or they don't have transportation to get somewhere, there's all these barriers that get in the way. And then people keep trying and trying. And then each barrier becomes kind of like they're getting pushed and they're, and then some people just get tired of it. Yep, absolutely. Um, so I mentioned protective factors. Evelise, can you talk a little bit about the protective family factors that I know a study mentions? Absolutely. So there, there are a lot of examples. I picked out a few. Mm-hmm. So families who create a safe and stable environment in the home, how we were discussing a little bit earlier, a nurturing relationship, uh, meaning that children have a consistent family life where they feel safe, they're taken care of and supportive. So consistency is very important with children. Children need structure and they need routine. So being able to live in the same residence for five years, for example, versus bouncing around from location to location. Some children move so much in one year that that's not consistent. They don't know if they're going to be living in the same house or apartment two months from now, which means if they move, they might be moving to a different area with a new school. That's not consistent either. So being able to have some sort of family consistency, safety, nurturing relationship, these are all important protective factors. Children who have positive friendships and peer networks, very important safety factor. Children should be around other children. They should have friendships and they should be playing outside. When I was a kid, I remember playing outside all day, every day when the weather was good. And we were able to form these positive friendships. And we talk about these childhood fun experiences even now. And we really feel that was a good and important protective factor as a kid growing up. Uh, Families with strong social support and positive relationships with the people that are around them. As a child, if your parents have a good relationship with their parents, or if they have good neighbors that they're close with, or an aunt or an uncle that they are always in touch with, just the fact that they also have supports with them, that's a protective factor. Mm -hmm. Families where caregivers engage in parental monitoring, supervision, and consistent enforcement of the rules. So basically, I call this a present parent, a parent who is checking the phone, their child's phone, making sure there isn't any inappropriate activity on those phones, a parent who's constantly in communication with the school. Hey, how is my daughter doing today? How is her assignments been for this week? Is she on track? Is there anything I need to know? Parents who 
if the child is going to go and hang out with a friend for a little while at someone else's house where the parents know each other, where the children know that the parents are in communication. So being able to give your child some independence, but knowing like, yeah, you can go to your friend's house and hang out for a little bit, but you are very aware that your friend's mom and I, we speak and we're on the same page and monitoring you guys. Do you understand what I'm saying? Making sure that children know I'm here. I'm here for you, but I'm also a parent, which means I'm going to be keeping my eyes on you. Whereas children who have parents that don't supervise them and basically are not around for whatever reason, but the children know that they're not being supervised, that opens the door more for ability for that child to go out and maybe start doing things they really shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Doesn't mean they doesn't mean that every child will do that, but it just it creates the risk. A, the, exactly. It creates the risk for that compared to a child whose parents are pretty on top of them. Uh, besides the protective factors that you just mentioned, there's also personal protective factors and then other ones within the community. Uh, these factors, like living in a community where families have access to financial and economic assistance, access to medical care and mental health services. In some neighborhoods, they have to drive 20 minutes or if, if they have to take the bus, it could be up to an hour or over an hour to get to specific places. Access to safe and stable housing, access to safe child care to good quality schools that have the, the resources necessary to teach children, access to schools that have additional programs like sports, music, and other types of programs. And then another one is a community where there's control over violence. So you mentioned a drive-by shooting. You know, these kids are growing up seeing that, uh, seeing people get killed. So they're not in a, in a safe environment. You know, they could be doing everything right, but there's a, a huge amount of things that are out of their control. Some other ways to help a child that has already experienced a trauma is support from a mental health professional, avoiding blame, assuring that they are now safe, and working on their self-esteem, allowing them to express themselves and really listen to what they have to say. Like you mentioned, Evelise, keeping a routine is really important for kids and just being patient with, you know, trauma as an adult is so hard. We need to remember that as a child, they have an even more difficult time processing or being able to express themselves. Quality time is super important. A common theme I hear from parents is that they don't have enough money to do these things. So when I worked with the adults, I would give these suggestions and they'd say, oh, but I don't have money. Quality time does not require money at all, is what I would tell them. There's tons of activities that you can participate in that don't require any funds. I find that picking a day and a time every week for some sort of quality time makes it easier to be consistent. So that way the parent and the child both know that's their time on this day. Also, I think a team activity is really good idea. Children are supposed to be kids. They're supposed to be outside playing. So this is a great way for them to be kids. I used to play softball and I loved being out there playing softball. I looked forward to it. It was a nice way to get outside and be with other kids. Um, so I think it's really important for a child to be involved in some sort of an organized activity if possible. 
So some encouragement for people that maybe have experienced childhood trauma is that there is a way to overcome that just like everything in life. And if you're struggling, then I definitely encourage you to speak out professional guidance. But we also have some really helpful resources to at least start that journey. Everybody has their own time. But I would like to thank you so much, Evelise, for coming on and joining us. Your expertise is, well, I mean, both of you guys are amazing at this. But you guys are both amazing. And I I really appreciate you sharing your story and coming on and being our first guest for 2021. Yeah. Oh, how exciting. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a nice experience. It was a wonderful conversation. And I'm happy to be able to share out not just professionally, but also a little bit personally. So I do appreciate having me on with you. So some resources, if you're interested in getting more information on what we discussed is if you go to the cdc.gov slash violence prevention slash ACEs, that's where you'll find the information for the ACEs quiz. Also, if you're looking for that quiz, I found it just by Googling or whatever kind of search engine you use, NPR ACE quiz, and it came up. It was that first link. Also, there's, you you guys know how much we love TED Talks. Uh, there's a really good one that I found by Nadine Burke-Harris. She's a pediatrician, I believe. The title of that TED Talk is How Childhood Trauma Affects Health Across a Lifetime. It's a pretty short TED Talk, but she basically hits on all the really important points, including the scientific data regarding the effects of childhood trauma on adulthood. So I really encourage you all to check that one out. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Birthology Podcast. And remember, stay growing.